We're continuing in this sermon series. And by the way, Exodus 17 has two stories, uh, but for the sake of time, we're only going to look at the first one. So I'd encourage you on your own to study both of these stories, read the whole chapter in your small groups this week, because I know you're on a small group, you know, wink, wink. Uh, if you're not, it's not too late, but I want you to make sure you study this whole chapter together in your small groups. But for the sake of time, we're just going to look at the first seven verses, the first story here. And here's what I want to do this morning. It's real simple. I want us to think about the gospel in Exodus 17. I want us to see the gospel in Exodus 17. And now when you hear a preacher say, I'm going to talk about the gospel this morning, your assumption is probably, well, okay, we're probably preaching like John 3.16, or maybe we're preaching in the book of Romans. Definitely on the right side of the book though. Not in the Old Testament, right? There's no way. Actually we are. And here's why. Because the Bible is not a collection of randomly distributed stories that have nothing to do with each other. The Bible's one story with many episodes, with many scenes, and the individual stories are like puzzle pieces that only make sense when you see them in light of the whole puzzle. And what I want us to do this morning is look at the puzzle piece that is Exodus chapter 17, verses one through seven. Put it into the whole puzzle so that we see Jesus more clearly. I believe that Exodus 17 is there to point us to the person and work of Jesus Christ. But too often, and myself, I am very guilty of this, too often, especially in the Old Testament, we have a tendency to look at the individual stories kind of like Aesop's fables. Anybody know Aesop's fables, right? They're the little short stories that you like think the tortoise and the hare, for example. There's a little, a cute little story, got some memorable characters, teaches us a moral lesson. Then we go on with our day. We learn something nice. And that's often how we look at the Old Testament. So for example, David and Goliath, it's how to be brave. Esther is also how to be brave, but it's the girl's edition. You have Jonah, which is how to obey, or what happens when you don't obey, you get eaten by fish. Uh, and then Samson, I don't know what on earth you do with Samson. That dude was a train wreck. Like maybe why you shouldn't cut your hair or something. I don't know. And now, let me be clear, we do learn moral lessons from the Bible. Of course we do. And we should emulate or not emulate certain characters, of course. My only point is when we stop there, we're missing the point. We're missing the big picture. We're not seeing the whole puzzle. And what I want to do this morning is see the whole puzzle from Exodus chapter 17. And to illustrate this even more for you, I could pull out you know, some scholarly articles, some big seminary textbooks to show you. But actually, I think the place that best articulates this that I've ever seen is the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones that I like to read to my kids. So I'm about to read a section from that, from the intro, and you might be thinking, Pastor Nate, shouldn't you be reading this back there? Like, why we're the, we're the adults. Why are you reading this to us? Just wait. Just listen to this. Now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules, telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best, but the Bible mainly isn't about you or what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. At times, they're downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything 
to rescue the ones he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It tells the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing puzzle piece, the piece that makes all the pieces fit together. And suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. I want us to see this morning how Exodus chapter 17 whispers his name. And then I want to close with a very surprising application. This text is going to show us Jesus and then convict us for what we often do in response. So let's look at this text together. Here's the main point. Instead of testing God, we should trust in Jesus Christ, the one who bore our judgment to give us new life. Exodus 17, let's look at verse one. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. And don't miss this. Verse six is the key. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Let's pray. So Father, we ask that you would use your holy and inspired word through the power of your Holy Spirit to conform us to the image of your son, Jesus Christ. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's start by just walking through the story together and getting the details, okay? And then we're gonna place it in the context of all of scripture. Let's talk about the story together. This story starts with God leading Israel into a test. Now, it says in chapter 15 that the Lord is testing this people. It says again in chapter 16 that the Lord is testing them. So it said twice already in this narrative that God is testing them. And I want you to notice something. It says that they're encamped at Rephidim, a place where there was no water. Why are they there? And second, who brought them there? God. It says, according to the commandment of the Lord, they came to a place where there was no water. God brought them to this trial. You know, God wasn't taken off guard. He wasn't surprised. They didn't get there and he didn't go, oh no, where are they gonna get some water? Angels, do we have any rain left over we can throw down there on them? We need some water. No, God was not surprised. He's not taken off guard. God's sovereign. And God brought them to this place very intentionally in order to test them, in order to refine their faith. 
And it's the same in our lives today. This can be hard, a hard pill for us to swallow sometimes, but it's a reality that God is sovereign even over our trials, even over our suffering. He has good and wise purposes even in those things. As it says in 1 Peter 4.19, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Yes, sometimes it is God's will for us to suffer. It is God's will for us to go through a trial, but in his good and wise purposes, it's our job to trust him. And is that how Israel responded? Do they respond with faith saying, Lord, you have a purpose for this and I will wait on you and I will trust you. Is that what happened? No. Instead, Israel quarrels with Moses and tests God. Those are the two words that we see that are kind of the key words of this passage, quarreling and testing. They quarreled with Moses and they tested God. I want you to see the progression in the story from 15 to 16 to 17. It's getting worse. God's provision in their lives is not making them more holy. It's actually the opposite. They're getting worse and worse because it went from complaining now to quarreling and testing, which is stronger language. Commentator Kent Hughes noted three things that they're doing here. First of all, they demand God's provision. Notice they never pray. They say, give us water to drink. They're being demanding like spoiled children, give us water to drink. But next, they deny God's protection. Think about it. They said, why did you bring us here just to kill us? Really? That's why he brought you here. If you've forgotten all of the times that he has protected you and the plagues and in the parting of the sea and even the manna that had fallen that very morning, they're denying God's protection. But then worst of all is they're doubting God's presence. How does the story end in verse 7? The people were saying, is the Lord among us or not? After all of this, after the pillar of cloud and fire that they are following every day, they're wondering if God's really there. They're doubting God's presence. But it gets worse. Don't worry. Uh, because we see the word quarreling here. The ESV used the words quarreling. And actually, nerd out on you for two seconds, the Hebrew word is actually a legal term. We could translate this, bring a charge against. This is my speculation here. I think they're ready to set up some kind of court and do a mutiny. I think they're ready to overthrow Moses. I think that's how serious this is. And I think Moses gets that because what does he say? God, they're getting ready to stone me. They're about to turn on Moses. This is how serious this is getting. They are quarreling. They're bringing charges against Moses and by extension, God saying, you don't care about us. You only brought us out here to kill us. And what does Moses say that they're doing in all of this? He says, you are testing God. Now, I hope you noticed the, the interplay there because 15 and 16, God is testing them. Now in 17, they are testing God. So first of all, that shows us that they are putting themselves in God's place. It's God's job to test. It is not ours. God is the one who tests us. We don't test God. But what does it mean to test God? It means to use our own standards to judge God, to use our own human standards of judgment to determine whether or not God is good or whether or not God is faithful or God can be trusted or if God even exists. I hope you can see that that is the height of human arrogance, the height of pride. 
to believe that we, as the creatures, have the authority and the right to judge and to test the creator. And that's exactly what they're doing. Moses, understandably, is distraught. And finally, somebody prays. He cries out to the Lord, verse four, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And then we see God's amazing response. What we see here is God's provision through judgment. God's provision through judgment. Look at verse five with me. The Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. Let's talk about the staff for a minute because I hope y'all know Moses did a lot of stuff with that staff, right? It turned into a snake when he threw it on the ground. He used it to part the sea, but he only mentions one thing here. He mentions striking the Nile. The Holy Spirit doesn't waste words. This is significant. What's the significance of striking the Nile? Does anyone remember? It's back in Exodus 7. We studied it last year. What happened when Moses struck the Nile with the staff? The water turned into blood. As an act of judgment for Egypt's unbelief, God took away their water supply. What's happening here? God in Israel's unbelief strikes the rock and provides them with a water supply. But here's the deal. Don't miss this. It's still an act of judgment. It's still an act of judgment. But here's the million dollar question. On who? On who? Listen to this. Verse six. This is God speaking. This is in the Bible. I'm not making this up. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock. Not what I would expect to hear if I was Moses. I would be saying, all right, I got my staff. The Lord says, strike. Okay, let's line them up, Lord. These people need a whooping. They won't listen. They won't obey. Let's just go down the line. We'll strike every last one of them. That's what they deserve. But instead, God says, I'm gonna be there on that rock and I want you to strike the rock. In other words, the people sinned, the people rebelled and God took his own judgment. Does that sound familiar? God took his own judgment and what happens at the very moment when the rock was struck, the water that saved their lives came flowing out. I'm not a biologist or I guess a geologist in this case but water doesn't typically do that. Rocks don't typically do that. This is a miracle. This is God's miraculous provision for this people who are going to die of thirst. And water came flowing out of the rock in order to save them. So we've seen this story, this incredible story about God's provision. But now let's take that puzzle piece and let's put it into the whole picture because there's so much more here than merely a story of God's miraculous provision. Next, I want us to consider how we see the gospel in Exodus 17. How do we see the gospel in Exodus 17? Well, the apostle Paul, uh, one of the greatest interpreters of scripture of all time because he, was, he had you know, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and all that, uh, he interprets this story for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is what Paul says about this story. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock 
was Christ. Saying, you remember that rock back in Exodus 17? Paul's saying that was Jesus. Saying that was Christ. Let's talk about that for a minute. Church, Christ is the rock. What does that mean? Well, first of all, there is a sense in which the word rock was already used for God in the Old Testament as sort of a metaphorical way of describing God's character. For example, Moses himself, Deuteronomy 32, wrote, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. So follow the logic here. God is the rock. Jesus is God. So therefore, Jesus is the rock. That's true, but that's still not everything he's saying here. Because remember, we read it carefully in Exodus 17, even back then, verse six, God said, I will stand before you there on the rock. And what I think Moses and what I think Paul is telling us is that that was Jesus before the incarnation, before he was born. This is the second person of the Trinity, the son of God saying, I will stand before you on the rock. And I think the purpose is to foreshadow this central reality to the gospel, that Christ bore our judgment. He is teaching the people, even back then, that God will take his own penalty to save his people. Just as the rock was struck instead of those people to provide them with life-giving water, Church, the heart of the gospel is that Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. That Jesus bore the wrath of God instead of me on that cross so that I could be forgiven. This is what it says in Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Church, when we read Exodus 17, who are we in this story? Who should we identify with? Because I get it. It might be tempting to identify with Moses because there are people around us that are annoying sometimes. They won't stop complaining and we cry out to God for help. But let me be real with you. Let me tell you who I am in the story and who you are too. We're the Israelites. We're the grumblers. We're the complainers. We are the rebellers, the doubters. And what does God do for people that doubt in sin? He takes their judgment in their place. Jesus Christ stood in our place. He hung in our place on the cross, bearing the penalty that you and I deserve so that we could be forgiven. And just as, just as, when the rock was struck, the water flowed out that gave them new life. In the same way, church, Christ is our living water. Christ is our living water. As I've mentioned water flowed with the, from the rock when it was struck. When Jesus was pierced on the cross, what happened? John 19, 34, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. Jesus is our living water. As he said to the Samaritan woman in John chapter four, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Whoever comes to Jesus is eternally satisfied. 
He gives abundant life here and now. He gives eternal life in the future. That is the heart of the gospel. The gospel is good news indeed. And we see it here in Exodus 17, this foreshadowing that one day there would come a savior who would be struck in order to give us new life. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, let me invite you. It's free to all who believe. He is the only one who can save us, the only one who can forgive us, the only one who can be our source of living water. In a few minutes, the prayer team is gonna come. And if you wanna talk more about that, you can talk with them after this service. And they'd love to share with you about a relationship with Christ. And now, if I ended the sermon now, I prayed, the worship team came, that would be great. Man, this is heartwarming. This is awesome. That's not how the story ends though. The story ends on a really dark negative note. How does it end? It ends with a warning. It ends with a warning. Look at verse seven with me. And he called the name of the place Massa, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarreling, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? That place was literally named after their sin as a tragic memorial. Likewise, after Paul says that the rock was Christ in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, what does he say as a follow-up to that? Verse five, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. I would be remiss not to close this sermon with the same warning that this story ends with and that Paul gives to the Corinthians. And it's this, don't test God. Don't test God. This is the lesson. Exodus 15 and 16, God is testing the people. And when it gets really bad is when they believe they can start testing him in Exodus chapter 17. This is a lesson that Jesus himself learned. Matthew chapter four, then the devil took him to the holy city and set him down at the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, he will bear you up lest they strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness, he learned the lesson that Israel never learned in their 40 years in the wilderness. That God tests us, we don't get to test God. We don't test God, we trust God. We trust that he knows what he's doing and we come to him with humility, with faith, with surrender. And this is what it sounds like to test God. This is what it looks like. I'm sure you've heard it. I'm sure you've said it. God, forgive me for when I've thought things like this and said things like this. This is what testing God sounds like. I can't believe in a God that would do blank. If God really loved me, he would blank. If God does blank, then I'll believe in him. I will trust him. I will worship him. I will go to church, fill in the blank. This is what it boils down to. If God's will will conform to my standards of what God should be like, then I will condescend to bless him with my worship. In other words, I set the agenda for what a God should be like, and then I judge God based on how well he conforms to me. That is arrogance. That is pride. 
pure and simple, God, forgive us for this. When we look at God and tell him how to be God, that's not our job. We don't test God, we trust God. This is what C.S. Lewis said. The ancient man approached God or even the gods as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. He is the judge, God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge if God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease. He is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. And this is the question that we have to ask ourselves as we close this morning, church. Do we come to God with a list of terms and conditions? Do we come to God saying, God, as long as you do this, this, and this, we're good? Does your Christianity have strings attached? If so, then you've never truly come to God. The true response to God is poor in spirit. It says, God, I surrender. I'm humbled. You are God, I am not. Your will is good and perfect and I surrender to you even when I don't understand, I trust. So church, instead of testing God, what does it look like to trust him? It means that even when we're in Rephidim, even when we're in the place where there's no water, we understand that we serve a God who makes a specialty. It is his specialty to make a way when there's no way. This is the God who makes bread fall down from heaven. It's the God that makes water come out of rocks. This is the God who parts seas and sends plagues and raises the dead. We trust him. We trust that he knows what he's doing. We trust that he's good and faithful and wise. Very practically, what does it look like? I've mentioned this before, but I'm struck in this sermon with the fact that they never pray. Isn't that interesting? They grumble, they quarrel, they test, they demand, but they never pray. Prayer is the language of faith. It's the expression of trust. Instead of testing God, we cry out to him. We cry out to him in faith. So I'm gonna invite the worship team to come now. I'm gonna invite the prayer team to come now. And it's my heart that we've seen the gospel so clearly in this story and in light of the faithfulness of God and sending his son to die for us, oh, how we should trust him, not test him. That we should give him our lives, not demand that he meet our standards and expectations. Let's do business with God this morning. Let's come to a place of humble surrender before the Lord where we say, Lord, you are God, I am not, and I am yours. Amen. Let's close with prayer. Lord, we run to you this morning knowing that you are the only one who can forgive us. You are the only one who can cleanse us. You are the only one that can satisfy us. Oh Lord, we repent. We repent of the times when we come to you and instead of Instead of trusting you, Lord, we test you by demanding that you do what we want. Lord, you are God, we are not. You are holy, we are not. We need you. We run to you. We cry out to you today. We praise you for the gospel that Christ was struck so that we could be forgiven. I pray, Lord, that you would deepen our faith as we run to you now. In Jesus' name.